0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival.
1: And now, here's your host, Mark Zino. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. And of course, welcome to those who are watching this on the Hazard Ground YouTube channel as well as the Kill Cliff YouTube channel. We appreciate you guys consuming the Hazard Ground as many ways as possible. And certainly thank you for being part of the show. Before we get to this week's guest, who is a retired Navy doctor with a lot of stories from Afghanistan, excited to hear about all of those. Remind you about our Apple reviews that we are asking you guys to help us crack the top 100 Apple podcasts. You can do it from your smartphone, from your computer. Leave a short review Give us five stars Continue to help grow The Hazard Ground community It does not take a long time And who knows uh, If you put a good review on there We'll certainly post it On our social media sites Where you can follow us all On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram At Hazard Ground At Hazard Ground Podcast But the more reviews we get the more Apple will push our podcast out to the masses and we can continue to get these stories told to as many people as possible. As well, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, HazardGround.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Same thing with your smartphone. Go to the website, HazardGround.com, and it will redirect you right to the app so all of your credit card information is saved. Very, very user-friendly. You do all your normal Amazon shopping, we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations that you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground, so you can help out veterans all across America just by shopping on Amazon, but go to HazardGround.com first. As well, don't forget to download the KillCliff app. Check us out at KillCliff.com as well. They're great friends, great partners of the show, and we're certainly happy to have them along with us. Now on to this week's guest, who is a retired Navy captain and also a medical doctor who has 31 years of total service. He has multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, and he has authored one novel titled The End. He is in production of finishing his second novel. He has also completed a nonfiction memoir called Citizen Surgeon, and he is here to join us and tell his story. And he is Dr. Paul Roach, joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Doc, welcome, and thank you so much for being here.
0: Ah, uh, Thank you very much for having me. It's a uh... It's a big thrill. I've been listening to the podcast for a while now, and uh, um, it's an incredible group with a bunch of great stories, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of it.
1: Absolutely. And, and Dr. Roach is a listener suggestion, so it's always great when we have uh, people who love the show give us suggestions, and we certainly appreciate Uh, he telling the ability to tell your story, uh, but 31 years of service, uh, obviously all in the medical field, but I'm always, I'm always curious to talk to doctors, uh, and people in the medical field, in the military, because being a combat medic and being a combat doctor is, is an experience. Unlike combat, you you never have to dodge a bullet. You never have to worry about anything blowing up, but the, the, the sort of burden of saving lives is so much more on your plate than anything else. And I just think that's an awesome responsibility. And uh, certainly thank you, you know, again, for uh, bearing that responsibility and, and continuing to help keep people alive on the battlefield. So, uh, just incredible.
0: Uh, thanks very much. I, uh, I joined, I meant to only be in for four years, but um, <laughs> I guess I just stayed a little longer. Uh, and, uh, and you're absolutely right. There wasn't uh, nearly as much danger uh, for us, but the responsibility, uh, you know, you take it really seriously and um, and you're you're kind of like the goalie for a, a hockey team or a soccer team. It's the loneliest position on the field and you're you're the last chance. Right. So go back to the beginning.
1: Uh, you went to your undergrad where and did you know that you wanted to be a doctor from the start?
0: Not at all. Uh, I, I went to undergrad at Loyola University of Chicago. Um, uh, I know you had a few Loyola grads, one just uh, two weeks ago mm-hmm. and I was an English major. Um, and, uh, I didn't have much of a plan other than, uh, just to go to college and play soccer. Um, but junior year, second semester, it was when, um, I realized that, that my idea of becoming like, I don't know, a bartender in Spain or something like that was, which had been my first plan might be something I could improve upon, you know? And, uh, I thought about it a lot. My dad had been a Navy psychiatrist and I thought, what the hell I'll, I'll just retool and I'll, I'll go to med school. It was just kind of impulsive, I suppose at the time. Um, but, uh, I think it was a good decision in the end. It's, yeah. it's been more rewarding, I think, than my bartender plan.
1: <laughs> uh, so how does the Navy come into the picture for you?
0: So uh, my dad, my dad had passed away my freshman year. Um, And, uh, and I really didn't think much about it. Uh, And then when second semester junior, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go pre-med after all. I'm just going to do a 180. Um, I didn't have any way to pay for it. And I think the other thing that was really important to me was I wanted to Uh, as I would say, walk a mile in my dad's moccasins. He was in the Korean War. Um, And uh, uh, in fact, I brought a little, I brought a a shadow box I made of him for show and tell since we're on video. So you don't have to just look at my mug here, but uh, uh, he, he had enlisted in the Navy. He and his brother, they grew up in Englewood, Chicago, uh, which is in the South side. And they enlisted for world war II and he, they took an entrance exam and when he took it, they said it was called the V12 program. They're like, well, you could be a, your bright little kid, you could be a, a doctor. So he just chose, well, I guess to be a doctor. Um, so they sent him two years of college and then to med school and, and then he became a psychiatrist. By then, the World War II was over, but he volunteered for Korea. Uh, and then he was in the front in Korea uh, with the Marines. And so I think that was just as important as the money factor. When I was, um, a senior, I, I wanted to, you know, uh, get to know him better, I suppose. So the plan was to be a psychiatrist.
1: Mm-hmm. And so how does psychiatry turn into general practice or, you know, general doctorship? General
0: surgery? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I was, convinced and like all the interviews you know like you're a kid you don't know what you're saying like i i don't really know like when you're saying oh i want to go to med school because i love biology and and i want to help people the real reason was dad and i used to watch mash growing up you know and and uh uh and then so i was convinced i was going to be a psychiatrist just like my dad had been and uh so f- first two years of med school you're in laboratories and classrooms. And it's the second two years where you're in the hospital. So you do these rotations, you know, you'll go on psychiatry and then neurology and pediatrics and whatever. So you arrange your rotations based on what you think you want to do. Mm -hmm. So I did psychiatry first and I don't know, six or eight weeks later, I called up my mom and I'm like, mom, I'm not going to be a psychiatrist. I can't do it. It's just not me. And, and she said, Oh, your father would be so relieved. So I had her blessing. Yeah. So then I didn't know what I was going to do. I had, I had joined medical school, you know, certain I was going to do that. So I went to each rotation and I tried to find it out and it was doing the general surgery rotation where I fit in the best and where I was happiest and it was really hard and exhausting, but I was thrilled by it. And, um, uh, and I talked with my they were newlyweds and, you know, we knew it'd be a hard road to go. And she's like, look, I've been with you this whole time. And, um, uh, and I'm, and I, I, agree. You're, you're by far the happiest on this surgery rotation. So that's how it happened.
1: Sure. Now you
0: had graduated in
1: 1990. Uh, you went through medical school for four years. So it's 94. So the Gulf War passes you by. Did you ever yeah. when you had had, you know, got the white coat and, and completed everything, you know, in the mid 90s, did you ever think that you would end up being a combat surgeon at some point in time?
0: No, no, that, this 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 evolved over time. You know, I did my I was going to do four years and get out. Um, When did I decide to do that? I think all along I was sort of thinking of it. And then you do your first year after medical school is called your internship. Mm-hmm. It's like your rookie year as a cop. And you do your internship and you take that, that exam at the end of it. And then you're a licensed physician, like a GP, general practitioner. So it still happens now, but not nearly as much. Back then, a lot of us, at least in the Navy, as a GP, you would go out and you go out with the Marines or you could do a six-month class and go dive slash undersea or flight. And people said if you want to get into surgery because it was a competitive thing to get into, you had to either do like two years with the Marines or three years flight. And I, I liked all three options, but I just chose flight one how to fly a plane or a helicopter. So. Uh, I went to the Navy does a six month flight medicine program. They call it flight surgery, but there's no surgery. Um, so you learn to fly the helicopter or the fixed wing. And then I went off with the Marines in Okinawa where were was the 31st Mew. Um, and I did a tour there. And then I did a second tour, uh, back in the States cause they said, no, no, you can't go on to surgery. Just finish your flight surgery time. So then I was done I had given him my four years and I could have walked away and I had orders to leave. Um, and this was nineteen ninety eight. Then to ninety yeah. Okay. Ninety-eight. Yeah, ninety-eight. Well, internship didn't count for okay. or against. So, so ninety nine. There's then. five years. So it was ninety nine. Right, okay. Summer and ninety-nine. And so I had a general surgery residency at University of Maryland in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stopped by Bethesda hospital to visit a friend of mine from the Navy and their chief of surgery said, Hey, if you want to stay active duty while you're at Maryland, you can. And, and then you'll just come back and know us another four years. So again, I spoke with my wife and we just thought about it and we're like, this sounds really good. So we did it. And then she was able to stay at home with the children and not have to go back to work. And we lived off of Annapolis, at the Naval Academy grounds oh, wow. and I drove up to Baltimore every day.
1: Yeah. A nice commute up 97 every day, huh?
0: It was, yeah, it was a tough commute. Uh, <laughs> it was tough, but I was up early. I was there before everybody and home after everybody. So there was never any traffic.
1: Right. Um, so nine 11 happens while you're there then.
0: Yeah. Okay. For nine 11, I was in Baltimore at, uh, what's the name of it? one of these uh, outside hospitals and we were doing a, a, lung cancer resection on this guy's chest. And uh, so the, the tumor was in his lung and it's just myself and another and the main surgeon. And he's teaching me how we do these things. And um, we nicked one of the pulmonary veins and those can bleed like hell and you can bleed to death really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we're pinching it. And he's like, all right, let's give him a few units of blood and then we'll finish off. And there had been a snafu and we didn't have the blood. So normally I would get my head cut off in that situation because usually it's your job as the junior guy to make sure there's no mistakes like this. But this guy was super casual and it wasn't actually my mistake, but normally you get blamed for it anyway. Um, And so while we're waiting for the blood and the patient had a really unique uh, blood type, so it took maybe two hours. So we're just sitting there holding his pulmonary vein for like two hours. Maybe it was less, but it seemed like forever while people are rushing in and rushing out of the OR, but they can't really disturb you. But you know, something weird is going on. And, um, so then we get the blood finish the tumor lung resection, you know, close them up and go out and in the doctor's lounge, that's when I saw, the footage of the planes So I missed the whole thing Because we were in the OR And when I saw that I was like, holy cow That changes everything Yeah, <laughs> You know, just like everybody Everybody did
1: Right um, Did you think initially That you may get called up for something That you may have to be pressed into service From a military standpoint Or they the deal you had signed for the four years Was the deal you had signed for the four years And you were locked into it
0: yeah. I totally, like I was ready in med school. I thought they were going to call and I was like, well, I don't know what I would do. You know, I can barely tie my shoes. Um, <laughs> uh, but I was pretty sure I was going to get called up because at Maryland, Maryland's one of the best trauma programs in the country. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I didn't realize this isn't quite how it works, but I thought that they'd be like, all right, we're going to take that guy in and, and send him, which to be great. I would go do what I'm there to do. Uh, but I was, I think I was a fourth year. No. Yeah. Cause I, that was nine 11, 2001. And I graduated in 2003. So I was a fourth year resident. I still had a whole nother year to go. So I wasn't quite independent as a surgeon yet. Mm-hmm. So no, I, I wondered, but no, they did not call.
1: Okay. So
0: when the residency in Baltimore
1: ends, what options are in front of you at this point in time?
0: Yeah, so I've, I had figured, and the reason I went to Maryland was it's really one of the you know, great programs in the country, and I thought that I would get pulled in right away. Um, but then the message came down to me, they're like, no, we don't know you, so you're not going to go to the combat zone, which I thought was strange. But, you know, I'm kind of an outsider at this point. I was like, you kind of do know me because I did four years as a flight surgeon, but I didn't train within the military system, and so I, I said, well, then what can I do? And they said, well, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, if I can't do that, I just send me somewhere where I can be with my family. I don't, I don't know. So they said, okay, you're going to go on an aircraft carrier, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, no family there. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and then that changed to. Um, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba and I was going to go there for a year Uh, and and this is all totally outside your ability to influence and then somewhere in there was Puerto Rico, it kept bouncing around it's like they didn't know what to do with me and then when I picked up my orders they said Sicily and I was like, what? I looked at the name and uh, I was like, yeah, these are my orders I guess we're going to Sicily. So I call up my wife, I'm like, hey, we're going to Sicily. She's what? Get the fuck. You know, she's super excited. We were very, very yeah. excited. And so we went to this tiny little NATO hospital in Sicily. That's awesome. Where I'm jealous. Yeah, it was it's just the roll of the dice. You know, I, I was I volunteered for everything, you know, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Iraq. I volunteered for with the Marines with the 31st Mew. And and I told them I was ready to go after the residency. But you know how it is. It just is whatever. So instead they send, you know, I am primed. I just had the best trauma training you can get, but I'm off in Sicily and I'm with another guy who trained outside of the military system, Joe McPhee. He and I became best friends and, uh, uh, and he trained at Long Island Jewish. And so we were out there together. So I think the pattern was they want, if you train outside the military system, they want to see you in a military hospital before they, Trust you going off to combat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A little bit weird because he trained in downtown New York and I trained in trauma in downtown Baltimore. Like we were really ready.
1: Right. Right. Um, so Sicily is in the picture again, but there's two wars raging at this point in time and you're sort of nowhere near either one of them.
0: Nowhere near. Uh, and bothered felt- by it or are you just uh, you weird, go where you the know. system sends you or what are you thinking? Uh, that was the system. You know, Joe had had the same experience as I had. And I think because we had trained in a re- residency outside the military system, we weren't tapped in. We didn't know anybody. Nobody knew us. And so they needed to cover <laughs> these hospitals anyway. And as you can see, like, you get your wish list, but it has nothing to do with reality. You're you're going wherever you're going. right? And And we were like, we we were asking if we could, you know, go either to Germany or wherever to help out with the effort. And then word would come on from down on high, and our, our hospital CO supported that. And then the word came back from you know Pentagon or wherever. They're like, Oh, so you're saying you don't actually need two surgeons in Sicily? And the hospital CO was like, well, we do but the guys are willing to, to, you know, go port starboard and, and, and help out for the cause. And so they just sort of jumped down our CO's throat for even offering. So that ended.
1: Um, After Sicily back to the States again, right?
0: Yeah. And so in modern U S most people, the pipeline for training and surgery is super long. You know, it's the longest one there is. It's five or six years before you're a general surgeon. And then three out of four people after that go do a fellowship. And you become a cardiac surgeon or a surgical oncologist, a cancer surgeon or pediatric surgeon or vascular surgeon or whatever. Um, This is getting a little bit compressed these days. But back just a little while ago, that was the plan. So I had to go do a fellowship now. So I applied to a few different fellowships all in for cancer. Um, cause I figured I already know how to do trauma. I'm good at trauma. Um, and, and so I got accepted at university of Chicago, which was a three-year fellowship. Mm-hmm. So they said, yes, go do that. You know, we're going to need you back there because with military medicine, it's changing now with the defense health agency being stood up, um, and I don't know if you want to go down that rabbit hole, but um, it was the case, and and essentially still is. But I think in ten years it'll be different. Um, that the military medicine has to support all of everybody's day to day healthcare stuff and going off to war. And because <coughs> war happens only now and then, it's like fifteen cents on the dollar, and most of it is just day to day every day, delivering babies, you know, all that routine stuff. So the system is designed to create people to do that. And then, oh, by the way, we'll send you off to combat, Uh, which that is changing at the moment, but this is the time where it's changing these days. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense.
1: No, I mean, you know, obviously I'm not the nuance of the the medical field. It it might be a little bit lost on me and some of our audience, but generally it makes sense. Uh, And and I take everybody through this sort of whole chronology because it isn't until 2009 uh, that you actually find your way into combat in Afghanistan. So how does all that come about?
0: So I graduate the fellowship in cancer surgery. You know, like if you've got a colon cancer that goes to your liver Mm -hmm. or a stomach cancer, something, you know, the really complicated cancer problems um, in 2008. And I go to Portsmouth Naval Medical Center, and uh, I'm there for about a year, less than a year. And I volunteer to go to Afghanistan, um, and there's they're they're spooling up for a big push with the Marines, and um, and I hadn't been out with the Marines for a while. I already had a a, uh, a ribbon, and I was ready to go. And I asked to go, and they said yes. And so I went off with, um, the Marines to Helmand province in 2009 for the big push up into Marsh.
1: Yeah. Uh, and again, for civilians who may or may not remember, you know, 2009, 2010 is when all of the violence in Afghanistan was pretty much near its height. You know, for Iraq, that was oh five, oh six, oh seven, 06, 07, which preceded the surge in Afghanistan. It was nine and 10, which preceded the surge there into 2011. So uh, you, you went there probably one of the most uh, pivotal times in the in the 20 years that we were there. Um, obviously, you know you're going to a medical hospital. I mean, it, it's different, right? For docs, like you, you know generally what your mission set is going to be. How much did you talk to other doctors who had been to either Iraq or Afghanistan to sort of gather uh, the mindset for what you were walking into? Or did you not do that at all?
0: Well, that was a nice part about being at Portsmouth. They had a number of guys who had been there and done that, uh, whether it was with the Iraq uh, war or with Afghanistan. So I made a number of friends throughout the department, and I talked to them pretty much all the time. And um, I also tried reading on the subject, but you know, like there's a hundred or a thousand and one books regarding uh, military stuff, but there's very very few. Uh, regarding military medicine, um, and so um, uh, I found a couple of those to try to get a sense of what it was going to be like because in the states you are it's it's completely different um, medicine in the states you're you've got your huge hospital with hospital <clears throat> systems and people to consult and blood banks and electricity and air conditioning and uh, huge wards, people everywhere um, and then Contrast that with um, deployed medicine, combat medicine, where you're in a tent, you're out in the middle of nowhere. It's either you or it's nobody, and um, uh, and and what you see is what you get. You know the walking blood bank because uh, you can't you can only hold a few pints of blood in your uh, in your coolers, and you know and your your everything is so rudimentary that it's, um, uh, a completely different game.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, so when you get there, you know, uh, first you have to kind of just acclimate yourself, right? I mean, there, it was, was there a sense of, Holy crap, this is what, you know, I've been hearing about from people. Like, was that a tough transition itself?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, uh, when I first got there, I, I have been, it took me so damn long to get into it. You know, this is 2009 now, you know, I was with the Marines in the Taiwan Strait when China was lobbing missiles over Taiwan in 96 and everyone was gearing up for that. Then, you know, they backed off, China backed off. And, and, uh, and then now then, you know, enter like a 10 year training pipeline or whatever. Now it's 2009 something that had been sort of a far off star galaxy in the distance. Now we're finally there. And I can totally remember the CH-53 landing uh, in in Camp Dwyer. Um, And you see this dusty little welcome, you know, Camp Dwyer U.S. Marine Corps base. Uh, And it's the HESCO barriers. And uh, there's a, a guy I knew who was handing it off to us, a guy named, uh, commander Stockinger, uh, trauma surgeon that I was friends with. And, um, and it's just nothing but blank, desolate dirt everywhere you look, you know, couldn't be farther away from your fancy medical center in downtown Baltimore or downtown Chicago or Portsmouth, uh, Virginia.
1: So what do you remember about your first day uh, in, in the medical battalion or, or your first day, you know, when, when somebody, they bring somebody in for surgery or whatever it may be.
0: Well, we had, uh, we had a rip mm-hmm. and, um, uh, the first thing that they were trying to do was give us, uh, you know, all the usual pass down, uh, <clears throat> there's one laptop for the whole thing. We're in a tent and, um, and it's, they'd sprayed the tent with, some kind of stuff so that it wouldn't get as hot in the summer and lose as much heat. So it was kind of this freaky deaky looking tent. We took all the the cots that people were sleeping on and turned them sideways and we're sitting on that. There's one dusty laptop and they're reading it out and they're trying to tell you all the standard scientific lingo, you know, the injury severity scores, the number of patients they get, the types of injuries, their survival stats. You know, all of that stuff. One, two, three, four, five. Meanwhile, there's a dust storm happening. Uh, So it was one of these big Afghan dust storms. So the tent starts flapping. And before you know it, there's little dust motes everywhere. And the storm is filtering in through, I don't know, seams or I don't know how. They cut the whole thing short. We all have to walk almost hand in hand from that tent back to the, you know, the birthing tents. It's like a snowstorm, but it's hot and dusty, and it lasts for like a day. And then when it was over, and there's nothing you could do. And then when it was over, there's dust everywhere. And now this is supposed to be a medical, surgical tent. and there's <laughs> So you have to then go through the tent, scrub them all down. It's filthy. And you're like, you know, I wouldn't let them cut my hair in this tent, much less do an operation. Uh, but that's what you got. It's a dusty combat tent. And uh, and and you start learning. All right, well, this is how it's going to be. So I think that was day number one. Do you remember your first patient? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so the the first patient that came in was a Taliban guy shot in the chest, and he had this oh, huge. It wasn't even an American. <laughs> right. Well, this I I said this to Jolt. I'm like, can you explain to me why? <laughs> we are operating on a Taliban guy and save uh, the bad uh, dudes, save the bad dudes. And he's like, he's like, you know, well, our guys being very civil about it, you know, after they shot him, they offered him some surgery, you know, it was like what happened to the coup de gras? you know, but, yeah. um, he said so much for the old traditions. Um, so, so that was good. That case came in, we had their team with us and sort of we figured our way through the system. You know, the surgery doesn't necessarily change, although it does because it's a high velocity wound. So like a normal shot, you get you get shot with a regular gun. The bullet leaves and it drives a hole through everything. And that's what causes the problems, Mm -hmm. that hole. But if it's a high velocity like AK-47, the bullet is bigger. But the bigger thing is it's much, much faster. And as it goes that much faster, now there forms around the bullet a blast wave, like a mini bomb. Mm-hmm. And so as it penetrates, it pushes everything out, and then everything comes collapses back. So like the guy with his chest had this huge hole, right here, like like that big, let's say, and. You know, I had trained in Baltimore where everyone was shooting each other all the time, but it was with low velocity, low velocity. Uh, Subtle God. shot there at the Charm City, but, uh, you know,
1: it's OK. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the city that reads. <laughs> and bleeds.
1: Um, uh, I lived there for a decade, so I could say that.
0: OK. Um, but but this was high velocity. And I was like, whoa. And so they just sort of didn't do a standard incision, you know, like that long spreading the ribs apart and get they just opened up the hole a bit more did their surgery and then closed it uh and then my first patient came right after that like the next day because you rotate you know who stays mm-hmm. and so uh what jolt had told us is you know about the nine line and and what 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 i know i'm i'm coming from like the land of oz into the role to environment uh i'm used to a lot of bells and whistles and jolt's like no 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 you know uh, the phrase we use in the Navy all the time. And I think I've heard it on this episode too, is petty officer schmuckatelli, meaning, you know, just some guy. He's got a couple of people who are injured. He's in the middle of a firefight and he's got a radio in this nine line and, and, and return fire and get rid of these patients. So as Joel said, they they usually get the sex correct, you know, like if it's a male, it's a good start. But, uh, uh, so so crack, so crack comes in the nine line, and like all right, there's a there's a, a gunshot to the foot coming. So I said to our orthopedic surgeon, a good friend of mine now, a guy named Craig Randall. I'm like Craig, well, all right, you got something to do, you know? And uh, uh, and then they're a little bit later on, they go, oh, there's a second patient, you know, five minutes later. We're all saying we're getting a, we're getting the hospital the the tent ready, meaning you have to turn on the oxygen machine. Because um, there's no just like compressed oxygen ordin- ordinarily, um, you have to get everything ready. Like there's a second patient. This patient has a, a gunshot uh, through the chest. I was like, oh, okay, come on. And then another thing comes later, like oh, it's it's through the part, not just the chest. It's between the chest and the abdomen. Um, what we call the thoracoabdominal region, which is really center of you and it's got all your important gear um and so that's bad and it's it's it goes across it so everything could be injured uh so in other words you don't have a lot of time if you have any time uh to make your moves and fix everything because you've got lung heart diaphragm esophagus liver you know all the major blood vessels aorta, superior mesenteric artery, pancreas, kidneys, it can hit any of that stuff. And if you got several of them bleeding at the same time, you don't have any, uh, you don't have any room for error. And it's not like we've got a huge blood bank. Jesus, I'm going to have to open up chest and abdomen. I'm starting to rehearse in my head what I'm going to have to do. You know, we're just going to unzip everything right away. Uh, And then right before they arrive, um, they say, oh, by the way, Uh, the patients are age, um, five, the foot and two is the one going through the chest. So my patient's two years old with this problem. Um, so, uh, and, and there's like some, I can't remember who it was, but it was like a guy from headquarters kind of thing there. And then he starts talking about how they're thinking about mission creep and, and, you know, they were talking about whether or not to equip us for pediatric patients because, um. Uh, you know, you don't want to get into mission creep and before long you're doing twice of what you meant to do with the original staff and supplies. And, and I'm trying to concentrate and get ready for this uh patient coming in and just you know five minutes for now or something. And the guy's talking me ear off and made it to escape. Get out there, the helicopter lands, you know, right outside the um uh so medical being a soft target has to be behind the Texas barriers uh and so the helicopter pad is right outside the texas barriers and so when they land uh marines will go out help the corpsmen carry the casualties off and then they place them down on just the outside part of the texas barrier for bombs or whatever Uh, you can happen in the vietnam war a lot um uh, or people could just show up and like one time we had a marine with a uh a grenade in his cargo pocket and the pin was pulled. I don't know why it didn't blow off, but there was. So you don't want to bring that into your OR and and then we all blow up. And now there's no medical for, for the, you know, the uh, offensive. So the Marines check them out. There's nothing on them. They bring them through the Texas Bear. We run them to the, the first thing you do is you bring them into the ER tent. And, yeah, ER it's like uh, just one of those plain tents. I can't remember what they're called, but, you know, the green tent that's everywhere. Yeah, the GP mediums, yeah. Uh, there's a name for it, but I can't remember the kind. But What's that? GP mediums. The general purpose tents, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah general purpose tent. And then, and then what you do is kind of like, you know, parking spaces at an angle. There's like four, there's like saw horses, and then you can put four. Uh, almost like a diagram you know on an angle so we put the one kid over on one side and the other kid on the other side so half the team goes with the foot and then the other half of the team goes with the chest and so the little uh, tolerant and his belly's out to here and, and I talked with a medic, it was a female medic she did a great job and she, she gave me the scoop and said the belly was flat when I picked the kid up, now it's like out to here and and then of course a crowd forms around it and you like got to get your elbows out Like all you people need to leave you know get get GTFO and uh, fortunately our anesthesiologist was a pediatric anesthesiologist so she uh, was really comfortable with the two year old this is a big deal to be a pediatric anesthesiologist so she took care of that the kid's strapped up in a papoose holler in you know we take the papoose off and and you, you strip them off, the translator is trying to talk to the two different kids, but not a lot of point trying to talk to a two-year-old. Strap the kid down, get an IV in, and rush her, pick her up, and rush her one tent over to the OR. That's my tent. You know, uh, Craig had his own tent for the foot, and I had mine for the kid. And, uh, uh, and first thing you do is make sure the anesthesiologist has all the lines in it that they need um, with the the little IVs. And so there's a two-year-old kid. So the IV is this tiny little thing. And, um, so she's got her IVs in. she's comfortable because if you start doing your thing before the kid's properly sedated or whatnot, it's a, you know, it's torture, it's horrible, it's wrong. So you got it. So that two minutes was like two of the longest minutes I'd ever lived up to that point. You know, I'm waiting for that thing to happen. And I see the belly and it's like the kid's pregnant And, uh, and I think it was a boy Um, and we're just getting ready and I'm getting ready for what I got to do. I got to. I'm not going to open up the kid's chest. I decided I'm going to go into the belly first based on where the two holes were. There's a hole on one side and a hole on the other side. You draw a line it goes right straight through the middle in between your chest and abdomen. It's not flat like a floor. It's dome shaped. So you can get both chest and abdomen with a straight line in between. Um, You have to choose, do I go chest first, or do I go in the abdomen first? And he's moving his legs, fine, wasn't injured. And since the kid was alive, I was like, it didn't hit the heart, or it did not be live, the freaking way. Uh, so I figured it had to be through the abdomen. And I was hoping that it was maybe through the anterior abdomen, not the posterior where all the major tubing and piping is. So I said, all right, I'm going to open the kid up. And of course, I've got little kids at home, you know, and uh, uh, you got to put that out of your mind. And so I the phenomenal, my uh, OR texts were awesome. So this was, uh, he was at the time, Petty Officer Geisinger, he's now chief, hands me the scalpel and unzip the little fella. You know, from right here where your uh, ribs end, the xiphoid, all the way down to below the belly button towards the bladder. Pull out all the... Uh, the guts and there's no holes. There's there's no holes. Do the whole thing. Look around for everything. There's no blood. The kid's not dying. There's nothing. And I'm talking with my uh, partner. So you have you, you have a partner. Uh, you operate together like a pilot and a co-pilot. And we all alternate. You know who's what. And and I said, like, what the hell. You know, the bullets are here and here, and there's nothing. And what ended up happening, we ended up closing them, and the kid did fine. The bullet, it's like the arrow that goes, you know, the, the, yeah. you can wear an arrow on your head.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So the bullet, yeah, hit hit. must have hit a rib and then tracked around and then shot out the other side. And there's no way we could have known any of this without opening the kid up. In the tent, you know, in the states, we might have been able to do a CT scan or, or even a roll three. And what the weirdest thing is, it didn't make any sense to me because how could it have enough oomph to do that? Uh, after we sent the kid up to Bastion, you know, we 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 package him up and sent him up to Bastion. They did a CAT scan and he had bruising of both lungs. So the blast wave bruised the lungs. So it had enough oomph to give a blast wave, but it didn't have enough oomph to go straight through him. So it was very bizarre. And that same bullet probably hit the sister and dropped her down. And when I think about it, like it's an AK-47 round, the muzzle velocity is, I don't know what, 3,000 feet per second. Mm -hmm. And the effective firing range is maybe 400 yards, but it it can go. It must have gone a mile or something because the bullet wasn't deformed. So it didn't ricochet off anything. It lost all that power through wind resistance. And so uh, then we talked. So I was like, that, that had to be what happened. But what what are the odds of that? So and then we meet the father and talk with the father. He said, yeah, they, there was fighting going off in the distance. And the kids both dropped at once. And so they both must have been hit by that same bullet. And it didn't have the kid who got hit in the foot. It wasn't a bad hit it, it it didn't destroy the foot at all and this is a baby's foot so it's very delicate so it really didn't have a lot of power left when it hit but anyway that was case number one wow and um, then the whole tour was like that
1: when it comes to you know saving lives uh, particularly that of americans forget the, the taliban and their children um you know that responsibility obviously isn't lost on you but um I'm sure you're bothered by the ones that you didn't save more than the ones that you did, obviously. So yeah. Uh, yeah. what about those sort of cases that you dealt with that, you know, uh, you did everything you could and and it just didn't end up being enough?
0: Yeah. You know, those haunt you. Um, uh, 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 another Navy surgeon uh, na- that I was, I'm acquainted with and a friend with named Mark Dabertine My, my exo in Iraq, um, met him and he, he said, Hey, so doc, how many patients have you saved? And he said, I don't know, but I know everyone that I lost. And it's very true. I think we all feel that way. Um, I'm sure we do. Um, and you know, there's two things I have that leap to mind to say about it. One is there's something very, very special about the patients I had when deployed. Um, during my whole career, I've had thousands and thousands of patients and, you know, I've done uh, a subspecialty in cancer. So I'm, I'm no stranger to sad stories, you know, and um, there is something very different about my patients when I was deployed. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't, I mean, I've heard other people, I don't mind sharing it with the group, I Talk with a psychiatrist once in a while about these exact guilt feelings, you know? Um, And I I asked what is the difference? Why is it so different? The, the ones that you couldn't save in the States, you have a very professional view. You can compartmentalize and it's, it's um, it's not easy. I mean, it's always a human life, but it's just so different than the ones that you have when you are in Afghanistan or you're in Iraq or, you know, even if you're not in combat, um, but you're in Okinawa or something. And what he said, he's a very smart guy and, and, and it's really easy to talk to and, and he's not, doesn't pressure you for anything. And, but he says probably one, they're like family and operating on family or being a lawyer for family or whatever is always a, bad mix and two it's uh relentless you you were just there like if you're at the hospital in downtown anywhere you get to go home at night and you get to recharge and recover and sleep and 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 get normal and then go back to work the next day but when you're deployed and you're overseas um everything else is stripped away so that's all you have And then you're there every day, every day, every day, every day. And so it's just a very different thing than uh, your normal practice. And having had both deployed practice and what I guess I could call ordinary practice, uh, I can tell you it's completely different. So your question is spot on. It's much harder. Um, Which is the case that, that sticks with you the most? Uh, there was a. Uh, it was an army I, I, This is terrible I still get confused with the army uh, Rank structure But I think he was a specialist uh, Not quite a sergeant And Close enough uh, he, got, he got hit with an IED And uh, uh, And he was Talking at the scene Now a lot of people get hit with an IED Or just knocked out you know, but he was talking at the scene, and 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 communicative on the way back to Bastion. I was at Dwyer uh, for a couple of months, and then for Mostarac Operation Kanjar, we were in Dwyer that ended, and then for Mostarac, which was up more like Sangin, Nadali, uh, uh, Marja, I I led it to Bastion, and we plucked up their hospital. Their rule three. So we're there for a couple of months in Bastion. So this happened in Bastion, and um, uh, so he comes in talking, but he was pale, very pale, and he had he had a, a big hole here and another hole here, uh, left shoulder injury, and so at Bastion, because it's a bit bigger and there's a lot of teams there had to be a division of labor or else you get too many cooks in the kitchen. So the patients come off the helicopter and they're rushed by the PJs or whoever it is who brings them in to the ER. And, um, and then the ER team, this is their patient and they do the initial assessment and begin the resuscitation. And there's a lot of times you've got plenty of time and there are some times where you don't have any time. And sometimes it's hard to know one from the other. Anyway, nothing was going slow with this fella, but they they bring him in and he's sitting in the gurney like this, you know, it's flat with the back up. So he's sitting like this. And I have to stand behind this yellow line like 10 feet away because as a surgeon, we're pretty uh, bossy as a species and aggressive and we'll jump in, we'll start telling everyone what to do. And that just doesn't work in a team game. You know, so we we have this line. Everyone does. All the roll threes everywhere have this line to keep all of us in our place until the ER's done. And th- that's how it ought to be, by the way. But so I'm behind the line and the ER doc is doing the assessment. And they speak out loud while they're doing it so that everyone can hear. You know, like, you know, 22-year-old male, IED victim, open wounds to the neck, uh, heart rate is you know, 128 or 148 or whatever it was. And and, and he's a bit dusty, he looks a little pale from where I'm standing. And, you know, they, they do their once over and then they roll them, which is a standard part of every trauma thing. You have to see what's in the back. But when you have someone who's really sick, whether it's an infant newborn or a super old person or a young person with a bad injury, they're really sick. Even just rolling them can upset the apple cart. And so this was one of those circumstances. You have to roll them, you have to know what's going on. But they rolled them, there's nothing, roll them back, and suddenly he's just tanking. Uh, he lo- loses his responsiveness, and he's just fallen into a into a hole. The ER doc recognizes it right away. And she's like, he's crashing, get him in the OR. Cause in that circumstance, um, actually she started to do CPR, which is a reflex, but that's not what you really want to be doing. But she's like, he's crashing, get him into the OR, which is the right move. And we're like, you know, get in the OR. So we're rolling it right across the line And he's, even as he's passing the line, he's barely conscious now. So he was fine just a minute ago and it's over now. We get into the OR, the anesthesiologist, Mike Kearns, was, uh, uh, again, I I got nothing, but we had wonderful, wonderful people. These were really high trained, really top notch. Mike tubes them right away, lines them and... And he says, Paul, he's crashing. He's crashing hard. So you don't, you just go straight to the chest in that case. And you just splash some iodine on their chest and you just grab your scalpel and cut from right about here all the way over to there. And you you make this deep cut and then you do another deep cut and then you take these scissors and you cut through the muscle in between the ribs. And then you spread them with this metal it's like an opposite of a vice you mm-hmm. crank it and it goes apart it's named after some italian surgeon named finicetto so you spread him with the finicetto and you get your hands in there and and you're trying to figure out what is going on he's got this big hole on his neck it's bleeding now wasn't bleeding when it came in huge ragged hole from like a rock and another hole and i and i i take a look in the chest there's there's nothing reversible in the chest you know you're lucky if you you can see oh the heart is like round instead of its normal shape and then you open up the pericardium and, and you maybe close a hole in the heart or something uh so get in the chest there's nothing Clamp the aorta, which is the big blood vessel that goes starts with your heart and then curves around. It sends blood vessels up to your head, up to your arms, and it curves down. It goes to the rest of your body. You clamp it down here just so that there's um, blood that goes to the head and the heart. And I stick my fingers in the hole in his neck, and they go all the way in to the base of his skull. And that shouldn't happen. That's, That's not a good spot. That's where your brainstem is. And I think what probably happened... And and then he just died right there. And, and we did everything that you're supposed to do. We did it fast because we were certainly only too well practiced at that. And there was no bringing him back. And I think the reason is he, he may have had a blast wave to his brainstem and that's what controls your heart rate and your breathing and whatnot. And that's why he was awake and talking. And then we just, I don't think it had anything to do with him. I think when he got rolled over, it just, it was time for this to happen. Um, but it was awful because you could see him first. He's like, you know, young, handsome fella. And, and, you know, and, and he just dies right in front of you. Um, and, and there was really nothing we could do and you feel really helpless. Um I, kept his name and, and social. And I um, called, uh, you know, everyone who dies goes to get an autopsy uh, through Dover uh, and there's a forensic pathologist. So afterwards I called and I, I had asked him specifically to look at the brainstem because that was the only thing that made sense to me that, that that's why he died. So, and uh, my message never made it through. And I was really frustrated, but I mean, I'm in Afghanistan and, you know, what does make it from there, but they didn't find any other cause for his death, but I'm sure that's what it was because you shouldn't be able to get your fingers all the way up to the, the foramen magnum, the hole in the base of your skull where your, your spinal cord comes out of. Do do you
1: think by getting the knowledge of what determined what happened or what clarified what happened, it would be an easier pill to swallow if that makes sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, think about your, your days as a kid playing sports, you know what I mean? And whatever um, scenario it is uh, you lose, whether it's at the base at home plate or, you know, your basketball and you miss a shot or, you know, I played ice hockey in high school and college soccer, college, you know, soccer through grade school and high school, you know, you lose, you lose the big game. And then you go over that thing in your head Mm -hmm. a lot and you're like, what could I have done? And you go over it and over it. It would have been really nice if they had looked at the brainstem and said, yeah, it was a brainstem. Cause then also, then you're like, well, there's nothing I could do, you know, but I don't have that. And so that's one that really, I remember all the time, you know? Um, And, and, um, uh, but that's the, that's what you're there for. You know, you give them whatever chance they're going to have, you give them the chance. Maybe they don't have any chance.
1: Was there something that you saw there that you never expected to see or didn't realize could happen, um, you know, in the operating room or whatever? Did something that sticks out that caught you off guard? It was like, well, I've never seen that before.
0: Well, you know, what, what what caught me off guard and then I saw a shit ton of it was um, the dismounted IED injuries. And um, so, you know, training in the States, um, you see tons of car crashes, uh, bike crashes, bike versus automobile, mm-hmm. fall from a height, you know, tons of stabbings and, um, and every manner of gunshot. And then burns. Uh, but there's nothing in the world like uh, dismounted IED. And um, you know, and I'm sure some of the guys listening today are I, I mean I know it, I've been listening to your podcast have have been through this, so I, I can't imagine what it's like as the individual, as the person to go through it. I think a lot of people are not going conscious immediately, but you know the bombs are they're ber- buried frequently like in the ground under the dirt, so uh, if Uh, when it goes off and if you're standing over it and you lose your feet and the, your legs are, are sort of designed like a cylinder and the tissue layers go like this. They're like concentric, like almost like layers of an onion. And so the blast cavity blows them apart and then the dirt goes up the tissue layers. And it's like a, uh, power jet that shoots them up higher and higher and higher and so as a surgeon if the person's let's say the bomb hurts only their foot and ankle um that's the immediate there may be dirt you know and that's got goat dung and whatever else in the dirt that got power injected way up higher so you get into the first operation and you think it's just going to be a BK below the, below the knee, you know, down low by the ankle because you always want to save as much tissue as you can. And you get started and you realize this whole thing is destroyed. All of this leg is destroyed and it may even be above the knee, you know? And then if it's a bigger bomb and it starts above the knee, it may go all the way up to the hip. And if it goes all the way up to the hip, you check the pelvis and sometimes the pelvis is blown apart and there were very few, if there was any, when it blew apart the pelvis and, and like you could put your hand through a hole into their stomach, any of those survived. That was just too much power, too much. The bomb had to be too big. There was too much injury that that encompassed all the way up to your abdomen. And there was just more than a, a human body could take. Um, but we saw a lot of those uh, dismounted IEDs. You know, single amputation, double, triple. I had a, a young marine who turned out to be a quadruple amputation, and um, we thought at the time he was the first to survive, but he's the second um, in the a- Iraq-Afghan conflict, and that was my patient. And then, um, Do you remember he was his name. Away- What's that? Do you remember his name? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Todd
1: Nicely. He was a guest on the podcast. That's why I asked. Really? Yes. Yeah. So we've ha- he we've and I Todd have
0: written back and forth a few times.
1: Yeah. That's incredible.
0: So uh, uh, actually, I was just... i um, will tell that story now. I mean, you know,
1: I, I need the background. I mean, we got it from Todd's point of view. I'd like it from the doctor's point of view. All right.
0: All right. Do you think Todd would mind? All I- right.
1: I mean, he's already told it from his point of view,
0: so it's not news. Yeah. Okay, so we're in Camp Dwyer and maybe it was March of 2010. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess the date. I, I don't know. Um, and, and the radio goes off and it's it's coming in. You know, it's like a, uh, it's mentioned, I think, from the nine line. It was a, a, a triple. And it seemed like minutes after it went off, it must've been right outside our gate patients there. And so I'm the um, uh, surgeon. And so um, one of the things I had learned when, when you don't have, when you, when you come in fresh, the first thing you need is an IV. You need to be able to get into the vascular space. If you're the physician or nurse or whatever, in order to give the medicines, whether it's pain medicines or whatnot. Muscle, but it takes time to circulate. It's got to go from the muscle, percolate into the veins, and then circulate. And you really can't operate with without IV access. So, um, uh, and it becomes a problem when they have had IED injuries to all four limbs. But at any rate, for any bad injury, a lot of times you just go straight. You're, you got your collarbone right here. Right underneath your collarbone is a big vein called the subclavian vein and it's pretty much the only one that even when you don't have any blood in your veins it still stays open veins are really soft walled and they collapse so like if you're trying to get the jugular vein the person doesn't have any blood left you're not going to get it not very easily because it's collapsed and your needle just goes right through it there's no you know like blood in there but this one stays open so that's one of our go-to's as trauma surgeons and you know how it is with uh, gurneys. They're like this. Uh, and what that does is it pushes the patient in like that. So pretty quickly, I realized out in Afghanistan that what you have to do is you have to stuff something under their back um, in order to pull their chest out so you can get at this vein. Stick in a big, big needle uh, and, and then put in a tube, we call a catheter. So you can start dumping in blood. So Todd comes in and he's awake and he's hollering. So I've always been amazed. Somebody was a total hero because he just hit something bad and they must have got to him, gone through a minefield so fast to put on his four tourniquets, probably six or seven, because you put usually two on each limb. Um, even though there had to be mines around there, and they did it fast enough that he still had enough blood to be awake, which is phenomenal. So whether it was his buddy who did that or the Navy Corpsman assigned to them who did that, that person is a king. So they bring in Todd minutes after the thing comes, and we're all getting our act together <clears throat> and they lay him down. And I remember the first thing I had to bark to put something under his back, and somebody tried to oppose it, and I nearly killed him because I like. There's no way we're getting this needle in a guy with four legs blown, four limbs blown apart. He's not going to have any blood left unless you get him in a perfect position. So it started off with a little squabble, and didn't take long. Uh, but you know, I can be angry when I need to. Um, so we get him in, and I remember this really well. Um, the the legs, and I, I even sent Todd the photos <clears throat> were still there, but they were basically gone. You know, they were like rag doll legs mangled, yeah, and twisted and floppy and whatever. And let's see. I think his left hand wasn't even there. And he had an injury to the brachial artery here, the left side. And he had some facial injuries, and the right hand was ruined as well. But it was still in place. And uh, um, so I the first thing, though, is he's not going to live very long if you don't get the access. So I put in one of those big pipes here, and my one of my partners was trying to get it on the other side, but no dice. So I run over to that side, put one in on that side. So now we have two big pipes in here and we start dumping blood in and we did activate the walking blood bank immediately. And I think Todd was one of the guys where it was our own staff. Some of our own staff gave some of their own blood, but the walking blood bank was amazing. I mean, the altruism of the troops, we, every time we sent out a signal for walking blood bank, people showed up. We had more people than we could use. They're like, I'll give you a pint. And so he got, you know, at least a dozen or more pints of blood from the walking blood bank. And we, the legs had to come off. There's absolutely no question. The left arm, the hand was gone. I'm pretty sure it was the left arm where that hand was gone. And the the, the heartbreaking one was there was still a hand on the right, but it was just completely destroyed. And there was no saving it. And so we're like, I, I had to decide to do it. And, and I brought in, our orthopedic surgeon was there. I think we had two orthopods at the time. We're all doing it. And we, we had a powwow. And, and you have to do it. You can't just leave it there and hope it'll get better because infection will set in, in, a, in very rapidly. And, it, and when it's destroyed, it's destroyed. You know what I mean? It's, you got to do it. So we did that. I put in a little plastic tube in the left arm brachial artery um, to at least give him one joint, his elbow joint. Uh, Because that artery was cut by one of the rocks. We took care of the things on his face and, and he was alive at the end of it. Uh, And, you know, we're in our tent and we bundle him up and, and, when you bundle them, when they're done, you know, you put all these wrappings and one of your main roles to make sure is when they go from your place onto the paint shaker and fly on the helicopter up to the bastion, you know, where it's the helicopter shaking them, you don't want anything to open up and bleed during the flight. Um, so, you know, you make damn sure that, that everything is, is perfectly dry and that he's not going to bleed from anything. And it was also, you know, you do it all very fast. And then we got on to Bastion and we had no idea if he was going to live. And when, as soon as we were done, we all just sort of looked at each other. And I'm the team lead, so uh, we have to do, uh, like, we call it a hot wash, go over everything and and what went right and what what could be an improve and, and whatnot. And uh, as I recall, there weren't many things to improve. I scolded about the thing in their back, but um, – we all were just sort of stunned and faced. Like, I hope we did the right thing. I hope we, re- we did the right thing. Did the right thing in
1: cutting off all four limbs or did the right thing in, in trying to no, save No, right?
0: yeah. Saving his life. Yeah. yeah I've I mean, never I've been, been in that situation Well, Again, before. I mean,
1: I, I, there's a point of diminishing returns as a human, right? I mean, you're, what am I saving? What's left of what I'm saving here? And I, I think it's fair to ask that question. I think everybody listening is all is all thinking that and saying, I mean, would the guy be better
0: off dead? Well, you know, I mean, eh.
1: go ahead. Go back and listen to Todd's story. He'll tell you if he was better off dead or not. But- I
0: will totally listen to that because uh, I was just so that team that of my various deployments, that deployment was the most intense mm-hmm. you know, by far. I mean, we got a presidential unit citation, the whole, you know, group of Marines. We were part of that. Um, that was our most intense deployment for any of us in our lives. I was in Iraq in twenty, I mean, in Afghanistan twenty fourteen, Kandahar, and Iraq in 2018, 2019, and you know, uh, whatever. But it was really that one with the Marines in, in nine ten that was um, the biggest deal. And so that group, uh, a nurse and a ER doc and orthopedic surgeon, and I, um, we still meet once a year or every other year for a couple of days and hang out. So we were just in Florida last month and we're all like, we got to go visit Todd. See if he'll have us out for a visit, but we still think about him. You know, they just stays with you forever. Hold on, doc. Say say that again. Back up. We got to go visit Todd. It broke up there for a minute. Oh, sorry about my internet. Isn't that great. Um, we, we've got to visit him because we just want to see how he's doing and, and say hello, and I hope you're okay kind of thing, you know, and and uh, catch up.
1: I mean, that's that's incredible. Um, and, you know, Todd was very candid with his story. Um, you know, he's a guy who, and again, I, f- I forget the number off the top of my head, but you could just Google Todd has hazard ground. You'll get it. Um, he actually tried to kill himself. I mean, hear the story of how a, per- a person with no arms and no legs Goes about trying to kill themselves. It, it's, you know, he's still here, still kicking it around, um, still surviving and thriving. So, uh, again, uh, you know, it's just amazing when you mentioned, it, I said, well, I know we've interviewed a quadruple amputee. Uh, there are many. There's only there two of many. them. So yeah. that, that's That incredible. was him. That's incredible. And
0: uh, yeah, and uh, uh, I know I followed him for a bit on, um, you know, social media or whatever, but I'm not very good about following anything on social media. So, but I I did see that, and I I talked with him, uh, uh about uh, you know not about that. Uh, he he had wanted to know if I had any photos and whatnot, and and I did. You know, and I asked him if it would be okay to talk about him in that that book I had written about that deployment. He said, yeah. Well, that's
1: what that's you know? what I was going to ask but, you next uh, about. You know, the book was that more about catharsis for you um, than anything else. Like, what was sort of your your uh, your reasoning for doing it?
0: Well. So I uh, I took I I kept a diary while I was deployed that year, and while I was deployed in nine ten, you know, with medical, you're just there in case of need. So there's downtime. So that's when I was like, all right, well, I'll try writing a a novel. So I wrote a novel or the rough draft of a novel about a a a guy who gets shot down in in Afghanistan and and his spirit goes to heaven, but then he leaves heaven to infiltrate Hell as a double agent. So I wrote that I wrote that uh, novel, you know, the first draft while I was in Hellman with the Marines, but I also kept a diary. And I didn't realize that at the time, the diary was gonna be a lot more important, I think, than, than the novel. Um, and then I didn't do anything with it. And then I'm deployed again in 2014, and I was going to write the next novel, but I couldn't. All I could do now that I'm back in Afghanistan again was think about the first deployment, and so that's when I wrote that book uh, because I was there again, you know, and 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 I had to think about it uh, every day because because you're in Afghanistan again, and 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 you're in medical, and and you still have the worst thing of all, which is time on your hands, um, so. That's when that got written. And I had to, at that point, I wanted to write something that med students could read or surgeons could read. I wanted to write it for my family and friends. So you feel very alienated when you come home because you've got this, this thing that you never had before and none of your family or friends have it. And you don't want that to be in between you and your wife or kids or friends so you maybe you can explain it and and then it was also i think extremely cathartic too like um uh really in the rewriting process you've also wrote a,
1: a nonfiction memoir um
0: yeah. That's the one.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. So, but that's that. So the novel isn't anything about Afghanistan. The novel is the novel. No.
0: Okay. No, that's, that's a novel for, for, for fun, for, uh, you know, like, uh, just if you like sci-fi not sci-fi, if you just like maybe sort of fantasy ish, you know, or, um, uh, the literary genre would be, um, magical realism, but fantasy, you know, that's just a novel. That's if you want to right. read something, whatever. But the the thing for like for the hazard ground would be this uh, this journal, which got turned into a memoir called right. Citizen Surgeon, and and I wanted to portray the war from the only perspective I know it from, which is as a surgeon. Right. So I and and that's what partly why I found. Oh, it is so fascinating because I've always wondered what it was like for everybody else.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, and and for my version of the war was so not warlike compared to, you know, an infantry person oh, uh, or whatever. <laughs> uh, but yet at the same time it was, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, we had, I, we I wonder saw the result. I, look,
1: I mean, all of us are generally type A personalities. Right. Um And Uh, the, the one thought that comes into my mind is, do you have more control over the outcome in your job than we do in ours out on the streets of Baghdad or in the mountains of Afghanistan? I I don't know that I know the answer, but I just, the question is, is sort of bouncing around in my head. Um, you know, you talk about that first patient, did you have any control over the issue with the brain? You know, you don't know. And I don't know. Um, do you have any control over where you step? Maybe you do. You know, you talk to anybody who stepped on an IED, I'm sure they think, you know, if I just went one step to the left, yeah, life would be completely different for me, you know? Um, so, uh, but I, I think that control issue sort of haunts all of us to a certain degree, right? I mean, yeah. you, you don't get to be at the top of your organization. And again, not everybody in the military is a type A, but most people are.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm not sure what my type is, but there's definitely a big part of this type A because the surgery side is, you know, and you have to, you get a complex problem and you only have a finite amount of time to solve it. Uh, And, and the stakes are one of our soldiers or Marines uh, or airmen, it's their life or their limbs or whatever, and you better solve it uh, fast typically. And if you don't, it's it's a mess, and then mm-hmm. you do wonder like is there any you know on another day could I have gotten it or if you know is there any other surgeon who could have done it? Um, you know, I uh, I trained uh, the hardest I possibly could my whole life and gave this career everything, so I feel at least like I didn't you know fall asleep during class, so to speak. Uh, but you still you still wish it could have been otherwise, you know? What, what was
1: the one thing or one or two things that looking back after that first deployment, you wish you had known going in?
0: I don't know. You know, I was lucky or unlucky, whatever. I had had so long to prepare Mm-hmm. And, and I trained and trained, I, I, I trained at Maryland. So I, I really knew my trauma and um, I do have an answer for you uh, because I've just spent the past 10 years working on it, which is um, combat medicine is different than trauma surgery. And uh, so there are, big efforts now to create a distinct we like, we wrote, we created this exam, combat surgery exam for the surgeons. uh, And a bunch of us, I was one of them. We wrote the questions and now we wrote a bank of, I don't know, 650 questions. And so now all the surgeons, army, Navy air force are going to take this exam every three years, I think. And it's, specific to combat surgery. And, um, uh, and then we wrote a textbook uh, called the M curriculum, and that hasn't come out yet, but I was the, uh, one of the guys. So my, my section was neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and vascular. Uh, But that's just one of the different domains of there's like six, five other domains. And so we're creating an online textbook. And then at USU, They have developed a lot of other stuff. These like really souped up training programs called Asset Plus, which is awesome. It's this, you get cadavers and it's really intensive and they're they're doing it very, very well. So that's that's what all of us should have before we deploy out into the middle of nowhere. The other thing, uh, the thing that I had to retire before I could ever, convince anybody. I mean, not that it was me convincing everybody for this other stuff. I was just one of the group. Um, But it was something that I dedicated a lot, a lot of my life to is for combat medicine, particularly if you think about maybe not Iraq and Afghanistan, where it was asymmetric and we had all the gear and they had their sandals and, you know, uh, it was not a near peer. But if you're thinking about any kind of near peer problem, our combat medical people are going to have to be a lot more um, military than we typically are. Um, A lot of times you take a sort of civilian doctor, put a uniform on them and say, all right, now you're a military doctor, you know, go out and and do good for the world. Uh, So the first thing that I just talked about was all the sort of like subspecialty preparation that even though it's a tiny little fraction of the overall pie. We have to ha- treat it like it's its own subspecialty. But the other part is the military part, because you have to be a lot harder than most of us in the medical field, whether doctors or nurses or whatever, tend to be. What do you in mean order when you say to, harder? Yeah. Uh, you know, just in the military sense, you know, to be able to live in an austere environment and to think like, the infantry does or whatever. I I feel like uh, we would do well to at least have a cadre, a bigger cadre of people than we do. Some of them we have, but we need more of them, more of more people like that, that are a bit more military as well. Um, But you don't want to be. It's tricky because for the military medicine, you have to slalom. Because if you spend your whole career in the field, then your medicine side tends to grow very weak. Right. They're all perishable
1: it, skills to a certain extent.
0: Yeah. And then if you spend your whole career um, in the civilian world, then when they tell you to put on your uniform and wear it like a proper soldier or sailor, they're like, what? I, I don't need to wear this. You know, they don't even know how to take an order. So um, you have to be kind of like an amphibian. You know what I mean? You have to be yeah. both sides.
1: I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, given the state of the current affairs in the world as you know, every vet who comes on who's been to Afghanistan. Now, I'm just curious on your thoughts of the end of the 20 years and
0: uh, what it
1: signifies and, you know, the people you work so hard to save and the people you couldn't save. And, you know, does any of that leave a bitter pill for you after? Uh, and, and again, not a political thing. I'm just, you know, we all have our own thoughts on the end of the war, right? Uh, I was there for the closeout of Iraq. I got, I could write a novel on that if you wanted me to. But uh, just kind of curious your thoughts.
0: So I just try to put it in the bigger context of uh, the world's a messed up place. We are the best country in the world to try to improve it, um, if it isn't us taking the lead on things, then it's going to be China or Russia. And and if we want to sort of get the world moving along in the right direction, we have to go to whether it's Somalia or Afghanistan or Vietnam or, or what. And we have our successes like West Germany and Japan and South Korea and maybe Bosnia. I don't know. Uh, and we have our draws like South Korea or Vietnam it's hard to say why it's doing so well right now but it is doing better I don't know if that was despite our engagement or not but I just heard even because I work at a VA hospital I had a, a, a story come to me the other day that um a guy was for Was the age of a Vietnam vet and he was in fact a Vietnam vet and uh the guys came up to him and thanked him from him and his whole family uh because they were that region was very worried that the whole region was going to go down so I know we lost Vietnam but or we didn't win it at least but it's doing better now and the region is it didn't fall so uh and I I've gone down the Vietnam rabbit hole trying to learn a lot about it and and um the more I learn, the less I know, it seems. And so with Afghanistan, I'm, I'm deciding to just hold my opinion. Um, I was proud to go there, and my family supported it, and we all gave it our best. Um, I think the ultimate solution would have been what, you know, back in history when Britain had left India, they had the East India Corporation. And there's a lot of bad things about that, but the good things were, it left people in place and they didn't have the uniform on. So it didn't inflame the Taliban. You know, it didn't inflame the whatever they were back then. Uh, But it was able to create stability. And I think if we were gonna looking back at it, if we were gonna have done it in any way that would endure, we'd have to get the uniforms out maybe even 10 years ago or right after OBL got, you know, finally taken out. And, and maybe privatized it. So you've got all the experts who are still there helping them out, stabilizing it. But, you know, you, you couldn't make that government more honest than it was. So I guess we tried, you know, I don't yeah. know. how do you feel about it? Uh, I mean,
1: what's, what's the, the view you're taking here? I mean, I, I that, was, I was bothered by, and I talked about this with a guest we recorded with last week. I was bothered by the press secretary's assertion that we didn't win the war militarily. No, we, yeah. we we won every military engagement we took part in. We got more bad guys than they got of us. The last time I checked, that gives us a W. Yeah. Uh, strategically, did we win it? There's obviously a conversation there. I'd probably lean no. Opera, uh, operationally, did we win it? Maybe no, but I think there's a debate there. Tactically, militarily, there's not a doubt in my mind we won. it. They, 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 there's not a doubt in my but, mind That we won every single military engagement That we were in That said, again, winning battles Doesn't mean you win the war So um, yeah, you know, uh, How do you not make What we did A wasted effort I don't know You, you can't go rewind and have a clear Defined goal uh, and, and if you weren't going to pull the plug After bin Laden was killed And get the hell out of Dodge and say, "Hey, we did what we came to do. See ya." But you know, our our country, our nation, since you know World War II, the biggest problem we've had is leaving. We still have yeah. troops in Germany. We still have troops in Korea. We still have yeah. troops in Kuwait. We still have troops in Iraq, and we're still going to have troops in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, this is this shouldn't be new to anybody. I mean, well, it, that was
0: yeah. That's that that was. Uh, I think it was in foreign affairs where I read that about. You know the in history of um india beforehand when britain was there and and then the presence of the uniform troops was so inflammatory and so politically problematic that they came up with this idea of privatizing it and so then they had people who would stay there for years and they learn the language and they dress and whatever yeah, i mean and and they Business interests. I think there was probably a lot of. I don't know the history of British East India Corporation other than, you know, very off the just the, the lightest. Maybe they did a lot of bad things. I don't know. But I think in the end, in terms of leaving, I think that's what you have to do. You got to get the uniforms out, but you can't just leave or else all of that structure falls apart. If it was so easy, everybody would have a civilized country. Well, again, I mean, I'm
1: emphatically opposed to us pulling out yet supporting Afghanistan financially. If you're going to pull out, get out. Yeah. Stop pissing money down a hole. If we're going to give money to Afghanistan, we better be giving it to American soldiers on the ground who can actually net positive. Um, Giving it to the Afghan government is a waste of money. It's a waste of tax dollars. I, I mean, so... Uh, I mean, it, it, there's no clean answer to any of this. There really is, and there never will yeah, be. Yeah,
0: you're trying to clear your conscience, and it's just a bad way to go. No, I and, totally and agree.
1: The idea that we're even going to sit here as a government and say Afghan, Afghanistan—I mean, I have confidence in Afghanistan's military. I mean, you know, I, I, I have—I have confidence uh, well, you know, that, that, that that my ex-wife isn't going to crash my Mercedes. But you know, I mean, it's—it's it's not a smart move.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if if giving them money could have worked, it would have worked yeah. because we already gave a lot of money over the past two decades, yeah. you know, we, we, so we, gave that lot, is, we gave a lot of money to them in the eighties
1: as well. And, and it didn't work out. So, yeah. you know, we, we, we've been repeating the same mistakes in Afghanistan for beyond the last 20 years. Anyway, we digress. This, we didn't turn this into a, uh, uh, debate on, on foreign policy in, in yeah. Afghanistan, yeah. but, uh, that said, you know, look, it doc, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, I think, you know, uh, the stories that you tell, they just they bring to life the job that you guys do that it is almost forgotten about. You know, it's, there's a lot of thank you for your service. And there's a lot of, you know, hey, you know, look at the fighting troops. But there, there, there's this other subset of people who deploy uh, like yourselves that often aren't associated with combat. But yet uh, we don't have any measure of success on uh, any measure of life afterwards without folks like you. Uh, literally putting people back together to give them a second shot at life. So uh, thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. It's been a real honor, and uh, I will continue to follow this this uh, Hazard Ground podcast because um, everybody you have on it is just an amazing group of people. Thank and you very much.
1: And again, check out uh, the memoir "Citizen Surgeon" uh, to get all of uh, or in depth more stories from Doctor Roach uh, in his time over in Afghanistan. So. Again, uh, Dr. Roach, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts.